0: This is Fresh Air. I'm David Cooley, professor of television studies at Rowan University in New Jersey, in for Terry
1: Gross.
0: That's countertenor Anthony Roth Costanzo in the title role of the Metropolitan Opera's production of the Philip Glass opera Akhenaten, about the Egyptian pharaoh who was married to Nefertiti. It was a career-defining role for him. The album from the production won a Grammy this year, and next week he returns to that celebrated role at the Met Opera. Today, we feature our interview with Anthony Roth Costanzo. As a countertenor, he sings in the range associated with women's voices. Some of his repertoire from the 16 and 1700s, music by such composers as Handel and Monteverdi, was originally written for castrati, men who were castrated before puberty to prevent their voices from changing and deepening. Costanzo also sings contemporary music. Terry Gross spoke with him in 2019. We'll hear Costanzo singing an excerpt from Akhenaten a little later, but let's start with an excerpt from Philip Glass's Liquid Days. This is from Costanzo's album ARC, which came out in 2018 and features him singing music by Glass and Handel.
2: Anthony Roth, Costanza, welcome to Fresh Air. You're amazing. (laughs) Thanks
3: for having me, Terry. I'm thrilled.
2: So let's just start with what does it mean to be a countertenor?
3: So a countertenor is essentially a man who sings in a falsetto voice. And um, the falsetto voice is just particularly resonant and well-developed. And it's that simple.
2: So what's the difference between what you do and, for instance, what Smokey Robinson does? (laughs)
3: Well, actually, we do the same thing physiologically. So... Every person has these two vocal cords, and they come together. I sort of um, liken it to blowing grass between your thumbs, if you've ever done that, and it makes a little buzzing sound. You blow air between these vocal cords, and they buzz like a kazoo would. And if we had no head, that's all it would sound like. But the kazoo sound travels up into our bone structure in our face and within our mouth, and it takes shape, it takes color, it takes volume, bouncing around in there, and it comes out as sound. And as opera singers, we learn to sort of use that air and those resonating spaces with the utmost finesse. There are also, of course, muscles involved. There are 60 muscles in the throat. So as a countertenor, we're bringing the vocal cords together, but we're only bringing a portion of them together, say two-thirds of them together, leaving a little space for some extra air to escape. So what that means is that most falsettos in most men are kind of airy because you hear the air escaping, whereas a countertenor learns really how to bring those chords to full approximation, as it's called, meaning fully together, but leaving that little bit that doesn't vibrate and therefore making a very rich, very operatic sound
2: Can you th- sing in a kind of falsetto like you know that a pop singer would use? Yeah. compare that to your operatic voice. Sure.
3: Well, you know, Justin Bieber or Justin Timberlake, those people who use falsettos, they generally do something like, you know, that's the, the feeling of it. And they're really close to the mic. So it might be like, you, baby, you know, and it has a little bit of that sound. Whereas if I'm singing falsetto... As a countertenor, it's going to be more something like this. This is the part where I guess I back up from the
2: microphone. Yeah, I think you better do that.
3: (laughs) And you see, even if I don't do it super loud, if I do it um, in a more refined, uh, sensitive way, it's still a full, rich sound. So it has a, a different quality, and it's really just about conditioning, like anything, like going to the gym, learning how to make your body do something specific.
2: Right, and I can hear like there's there's no air in that sound. It's just hopefully all a, it's just <laughs> a full bell-like sound. I can hear the difference in what you're doing. I I get it. <laughs> and I
3: I think the the um the completeness of that sound is what allows it to carry unamplified in an opera house.
2: Can you give us a sense of the range of your voice, how low you can go and how high you can go?
3: Well, the thing about countertenors is we have our quote-unquote male voice or, you know, normal chest voice, so I can go all the way down into a baritone if I want, but On the high end, I go up to a high A or, you know, in my youth, I would go up to a high C. You know, things that are more in the Queen of the Night territory, if that's a reference people know. Um, But I don't go quite that high. I'm not really a soprano. It's usually in the mezzo-soprano range. Um, And so I spend a lot of my life in the treble clef in the middle of it.
2: So can you demonstrate, like, the range that you have going as low and as high as you can?
3: Yeah, let me try. Uh, If I were to go all the way down in baritone, it would be like, ah. Then there'll be a a switch, which that switch is the break between what we call the chest voice and the head voice. And the head voice is the falsetto. So I'll show you what that break sounds like if I were to crack, which would be, (laughs) ah. (laughs) <laughs> right? And that, that's where all the yodeling happens. So when you get people who yodel, they're switching, they're popping between the chest voice muscles and the head voice muscles, going,
1: ah. ah,
3: ah. But um, I would try and smooth out that or find ways around it. And then I'm at the bottom of the head voice. And from there, we go, ah. ah, ah. And then if I were going to go up, I don't know how much I have this morning, but... So, um, and it could go, you know, even a little higher, uh, probably after 11 (laughs) a.m. Yeah, we're
2: we're recording as it is now 10.15 in the morning (laughs) as we record this. (laughs) Um, You sing a lot of contemporary music and a, a lot of early music from the 17th and 18th century... Exactly. Um, so I want to play just a short passage of some Handel from your album uh, of music by Handel and Philip Glass. Um, and I'm choosing this because, like, you're singing some low notes as well as the high notes in this. So I thought it would be an interesting time to play this. This is from Handel's opera Rodelinda, And this is the Vivi Tirano. Do, am I pronouncing that correctly? Perfect. And what does it mean?
3: It means, live, you tyrant.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Is there anything you want to say about what you're doing um, in this?
3: Yes. So um, it's a great aria in the opera in which um, I save my captor, the bad guy, from an even worse bad guy. And I say to him, look... I saved you to show you that my heart is bigger than my fate. And to illustrate this great emotion, what Handel used to do is these very fast notes, which are almost impossible to sing. Um, we call them coloratura. And so I have to sing, instead of a scale that's slow, like, ah ha 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 I have to go, ha ah, ha 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 And it takes tremendous practice and control.
2: And, and you agree you're going between some... Pretty deep notes for you as well as the high notes? <laughs> yes.
3: Yes, the opening phrase. I start up in my head voice, and then I switch down into the male, quote unquote, chest voice, and that's a great juxtaposition, which I think adds drama.
2: Absolutely. Okay, so let's hear it. This is Anthony Roth Costanzo. <laughs>
1: But oh,
2: So was Anthony Roth Costanzo singing music by Handel from his album of music by Glass and Handel. And he's about to star in the Metropolitan Opera production of Eknoten, the Philip Glass opera. Um, so tell us a little bit about how you do that coloratura, that very embroidered um, kind of singing. It seems so hard because you have to be precisely on the note, but it's happening so fast.
3: Yeah, and you want it to be distinct, each note to be distinct, but you don't want it to be um, breathy. Like, you don't want it to sound like, ha, 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 ha. You want it to sound like one <laughs> okay. beautiful phrase. Not machine gun-like, but more, you know, elegant. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so it takes a lot of practice, um, and I start slowly. You can imagine, you know, I put a metronome on, it goes tick-tock talk. And I go, and then I would speed up that metronome. Little by little, you gain speed. It sort of goes into your muscle memory. um, And you figure out eventually uh, how to do it full tilt.
2: It must take such patience.
3: Um, It does take patience. It takes a lot of failing and frustration. Um, But also what's amazing about singing is that The muscles involved in it are involuntary. And so how do we control them? And the only answer is with imagery, really, with the mind. And, um, you know, there's a great book by, I think, Thomas Hemsley called Singing in Imagination. And he talks about how the mind fires a set of impulses and they have an effect on the muscles. And then you have to sort of follow the Pavlovian principles. And you have to teach those muscles what you want them to do. So when I'm singing a high note my great teacher, a teacher I've been with 21 years, might say in her very dramatic way, Anthony, imagine that a flower is opening when you hit that note. And, um, and so I would imagine, in the voice of Joan Pat Nod-Yarnell, a, a rosebud opening. And that teaches my muscles to do a particular thing, that, that image. And so when I go on stage, if I've taught my muscles well... All I have to do is picture that.
2: So at the same time that these muscles are involuntary, so that you have to use imagery to get them to do what you'd like them to do, they are muscles and they can be strengthened. So you have very strong muscles in your throat. I don't know if you can strengthen the vocal cords per se, but you can strengthen the muscles. So what exactly are you strengthening when you strengthen your voice? And do you do... Or like scales and things like that exercised is not only for, um, you know, learning precision and tone and all of that, but also just to strengthen the muscles.
3: That's a great question. I I think the muscles that we strengthen. It's not really a muscular thing, singing. So we're kind of refining muscles. You know, it would be the difference between bulking up and and defining or something like that. We want them to function in a very specific way. But the muscles that are really important are the muscles involved in breathing too. The diaphragm is an exhalation muscle. And so it controls how the air goes out. And that's really important because if the air goes out too fast, you can't sing a long phrase and you might sound like that. And if it goes out too slowly, it might not have enough volume or presence. So there's that muscle, but also the vocal cords, to answer your question, very importantly, you can't strengthen. They are two little tiny flaps of skin, gristle in our throat. And we have so little control over them. When you see a video of the vocal cords vibrating. They do this kind of oscillation as they come together. Um, They look sort of like a belly dancer, (laughs) two belly dancers (laughs) touching bellies, the best way I can describe it. And therefore, you want them to remain very supple and kind of relaxed. And what that means, that's why hydration is so important, because they're skin. So you want them to be hydrated. When you sleep well, they're more flexible. When you don't have alcohol, in my experience, they're a little more comfortable and flexible when you don't, uh, you know, eat things that gunk them up, um, be it peanut butter, chocolate or dairy, right before you sing, then you don't get little pieces of phlegm caught between them that then cause all kinds
2: of problems. Before we get to Aknaughton, let's talk a little bit more about the tradition of countertenors. It's a tradition that starts in the 1600s?
3: Well, actually, so it begins not with countertenors per se, but with this incredible and kind of horrific creature, the castrato. So as operas beginning in 1599, the first castrati appear in history in the Logs of the Vatican Chapel choir book. And a castrato is... Um, And forgive me, everyone who's listening, it always makes the men cross their legs when I say this, but a man (laughs) who, before the age of puberty, has had their testicles usually crushed between two stones. Um, And this was a practice that started um, in 1599, so, as far as we know. And what that did was to preserve the high voice as these men's bodies grew. And so they would have the the resonating chamber of an adult, but the vocal cords basically of a boy soprano. And these creatures, and uh, I don't mean that in, in a um, derogatory way, but they were fascinating to the public, and they brought opera to the public. It became a public art form about 25 years later in 1625 in Venice because um, these castrated singers had made their way into the art form and the public loved them. And why did the public love them? I think about this a lot. I studied it a lot at Princeton where I did my undergrad. And um, I think it's a, a both a grim fascination but also um, there was such. Uh, an excitement about the high voice being heard in public with that kind of volume. You know, it was a time when women weren't singing in church, which is where much of the music was happening. Um, And so these men... uh, Women weren't allowed to sing in church. Exactly. Women were forbidden to sing in church. And these men gave a, a, a new sound and a new excitement. But also, if I can be so bold, I mean, imagine a time when uh, there's no birth control and you're in a marriage that you're not particularly happy with and you can fantasize about this man who is sexually functional but, um, but not fertile And uh, you go see them on stage and you imagine having an affair with them. I mean, these castrati became kind of the rock stars of their era with women and men wearing little portraits of them on buckles and on belts and around their neck. And I mean, it was the first kind of merchandising and celebrity culture. And for a hundred years, these castrati were the best paid most popular singers. Music was written for them by not only Handel, but Gluck and Mozart and Monteverdi and Vivaldi and, and all of these composers that you've heard of were writing for castrated men. And these were the men who were, uh, who were leading the opera world. And it was, um, it's, a, it's a kind of terrifying and fascinating thing uh, that is at the root of opera's success.
0: Anthony Roth Costanzo speaking to Terry Gross in 2019. The celebrated countertenor starred in the title role of the Philip Glass opera Akhenaten, a role he's returning to next week in a new Met Opera production. After a break, we'll continue their conversation. And film critic Justin Chang reviews Memoria, which made his list of the best movies of 2021. I'm David Cooley, and this is Fresh Air. <laughs> Let's get back to Terry's 2019 interview with Philip Roth Costanzo. He's a countertenor, which means he sings in the range associated with women's voices. Some of his repertoire from the 16 and 1700s was originally written for castrati, men who were castrated before puberty to prevent their voices from deepening. Costanzo starred in the Metropolitan Opera's production of the Philip Glass opera Akhnaten about the Egyptian pharaoh who was married to Nefertiti. That production returns to the Met Opera stage next week, with Costanzo again in the title role.
2: So, since you're about to star as Akhenaten in the Philip Glass opera Eknaten about the ancient Egyptian pharaoh, um, let's start with who Akhenaten was and what he represents in the history of ancient Egypt.
3: Akhenaten is fascinating and also really complex. He uh, was a pharaoh who, in 1375 BC or so, think 200 years before Moses, so a long time ago, um, became pharaoh at 17, and a few years later, he has this idea that instead of hundreds of gods in Egypt that had been there for most of their history, we should narrow it down, they should narrow it down, and there should be one god, and that should be the sun. Um, Ra, the sun god and that was because the sun gave life to grass and grass gave life to the cattle and the cattle gave life to us and not only was that revolutionary but he united upper and lower Egypt he created a new city in no time flat I mean really really fast and he changed the way Culture existed. He he changed how writing was done. He changed how uh, art was made and how people were represented. He wanted Egyptians represented not as stick figures in hieroglyphs, but as these curvy, realistic depictions of humans with their kids on their laps, looking into a man, looking into a woman's eyes, and and expressing love. He wanted all of these things um, to be represented that way, and then. 17 years after he'd made this new kingdom and new way of existing, he disappears. And we don't know how. Um, It's reasonable to think that he was killed because after he disappears, every representation of him in art, in stone, is destroyed. And everything that he has changed is reversed. Um, All of the progressive things, to use a contemporary word, um, that he he put forth uh, were uh, turned back. Um, And so uh, he becomes a kind of cult figure later on when he's discovered for a lot of different people. And the history is cloudy, of course, because it's so old. But what's as interesting as the history is its interpretation throughout um, the past few hundred years.
2: I think a lot of people now... Think that Acknaughton might have been trans. Um, and I, th- I think he believed that divinity was a combination of the male and female, which in some ways is not an, un- an unusual thought. But w- why do people think in retrospect that he might have been trans?
3: Well, you know, it's so interesting. I uh, When I first was studying Akhenaten, everyone in text referred to him as a hermaphrodite. And so I was talking to all these Egyptologists as I was researching the role. And I went to Oxford, um, where Richard Parkinson, a great Egyptologist, and his colleagues met with me. And I said, um, was he really a hermaphrodite? Did he have both body parts? And they said, well, he's always depicted with these very big hips and full lips and and almost breasts. So that's why people think that. But they posited this other theory, which is that he saw God as the unification of man and woman, not not a man or a woman. And he wanted to be closer to God, and the ancient Egyptians, uh, you know, invented waxing and all kinds of other distortions of the body. So could he not have changed himself, either in a surface way or perhaps more profoundly, to be... Um, Between man and woman. And I thought that was so interesting. Of course, what we call that today and what feels very clear to us is trans. We don't know how they thought about it. But um, I do think of him as the first trans icon and very fluid. And that's really represented in our production of Akhenaten at the Met, where I enter completely stark naked, probably the first full frontal male nudity at the Met. um, And uh, it goes on for quite a while in slow motion, six minutes. So you see this very male figure emerge. And then over the course of the opera, I kind of transform uh, into uh, uh, someone with these more feminine features.
2: And more feminine costumes?
3: Yes, more feminine costumes, but also um, I wear these kind of gauzy uh, uh, Egyptian linen pleated uh, robes, and underneath them, the costume designer Kevin Pollard and the director Vela McDermott have chosen this kind of slip that has printed... Um, a woman's body, a kind of painted woman's body. But from far away, um, and even from 10 feet away, it looks like breasts and and women's genitals, sort of. Um, And it's not graphic in any way, but it is um, rather very beautiful. And so you see this trajectory um, of Akhenaten's transformation of thought and also body.
2: Uh, Just tell us a little bit about entering naked. You've done this You've done other productions of Ecnaughton, and you've made your entrance naked before. What is that experience like? And are you wearing well, any body makeup or anything?
3: <laughs> um, not very much. I, uh, I There's a little, I think, oil and um, occasionally a little bit of shading to just help the working out. I've been doing furiously for the past <laughs> three months preparing for it, but... <laughs> but uh, no, when the director asked me to be naked, I said, well, why? And he said, you know, it's going to create this magical effect. And in fact, we don't do it in a way that's sensational in that I don't kind of run on stage with everything flapping all over the place. <laughs> but <laughs> rather, I'm revealed and I walk with such slow intensity. And keep in mind, I shave my head entirely, like, you know, with a Bic razor. <laughs> And, um, and wax my entire body because the Egyptians thought hair was disorderly. So we go full method on this, and I'm, I'm this shiny, completely smooth, alien-looking creature who's totally naked, and it takes me about three full minutes, which is actually a long time, to walk down 12 steps. And I walk down this staircase facing the audience. And I've learned that if there's any tension in my body... It doesn't work if I'm nervous about it. Um, But if I stare at the audience with great focus, with great conviction, and completely released, they can't move. They feel, they can't even breathe. I can see it happen. And from that moment on, we have their focus and their attention in a way that lasts the next three hours.
2: That takes confidence.
3: Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, it takes community, actually, is is what I've discovered. When I first did it, I thought, well, uh, maybe I shouldn't go naked till the final dress rehearsal, you know, before we open. Then I thought, no, that's crazy. I'll be so nervous. So I said to my castmates, okay, when you're all in costume, you know, and there are a lot of people, there's the chorus and the orchestra and the, you know, a it's, it's hundred people or more. Um, and uh, I said, I'm just going to, be naked from the first time we're in costume on stage and they said okay okay and terry i was standing in this little thing i'm revealed in, and my heart was beating so fast because you know you've been in a room with these people for six weeks they know you you've become friends and now they're gonna look at you naked and uh I uh, did the walk, you know, the four-minute walk down the stairs, and we had to stop because a light didn't work or something. And I covered myself, and they all applauded, and we all laughed. And from that moment on, I knew I had this community of people. And that community. It's not only the performers, but the directors and the stage managers and everyone involved. That's what makes a piece of art. And that's the chemistry that you feel come on stage. And um, that's what allows me to do it. It sort of carries me through. And I feel I'm a part of something larger. It's not just about, you know, 4,000 people staring at my penis.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's hear you sing something from Ednaughton. and, And there's no recordings yet from the Met to play, but you did an album of um, songs and arias by Handel and Philip Glass, and the last track on this is from Act It's Hymn to the Sun. So tell us where this fits in musically and thematically in the opera.
3: Most of the opera is in ancient Egyptian and Aramaic and languages like that. And, um, Which this you'll have a one... lot of
2: use for when this is over. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Well, it's been fascinating to learn them, but what's great about the way we do it is we don't actually project supertitles or translations. So you don't have to worry about it. It is a ritual that happens in front of you, and it's like unlocking these spirits of ancient Egypt, and I kind of love that. And I guarantee you will understand everything that's happening, even though you don't get the words. Um, But uh, this hymn is the only thing in English. And it's in English because I think it's inside Akhenaten's head. And, and Philip Glass actually specified that it should be sung in the language of the audience who's in the theater. And that's because it's kind of a prayer and a private moment between Akhenaten and his God. And in our production, a huge sun that's the size of the entire stage, it's actually an inflated ball. Most people don't know that, lit from the inside bigger than you can imagine. It's the size of a room. It envelops the whole stage and I'm there dwarfed by it, singing um, about nature and about what this sun means.
2: Okay, so let's hear Anthony Roth Costanza from his album ARC, featuring music by Handel and Philip Glass. And he's going to be singing Hymn to the Sun from the Glass Opera Eknaton
0: That's Anthony Roth Costanzo singing Hymn to the Sun from the Philip Glass opera *Akhnaten*. He spoke to Terry Gross in 2019. More after a break. This is Fresh Air. Let's get back to Terry's 2019 interview with countertenor Anthony Roth Costanzo. He starred in the Metropolitan Opera production of *Akhnaten*, the Philip Glass opera about the Egyptian pharaoh. Next week, the Met Opera presents that production once again with Costanzo returning in the title role.
2: Your voice is remarkable, and you've been very generous in demonstrating some of the things you can do with your voice and how your voice works. What makes it all even more remarkable is that you were diagnosed with thyroid cancer in your late 20s. How, how long ago was that?
3: Uh, Ten years ago, and it was kind of amazing, Terry. I mean, you know, in the moment, it might feel like a crisis, but looking back on it, it's fascinating because I was in a voice lesson with my teacher, Joan Patton O'Diornel. She's this kind of, you know, fun, eccentric diva. And, and she said, Anthony, ask your throat doctor why you're turning your head to the left. Might it be your thyroid? And I'm thinking to myself, Sh- what a thyroid? She's not a doctor. She doesn't know what she's talking about. And you know that experience. You go to the doctor and you think to yourself, should I ask about that thing or should I not? And so I asked and the doctor said, nah, I don't think it's anything. But, you know, go get a." An- go get an ultrasound. I got an ultrasound. There was a cyst. They said, don't worry about it. Everybody gets cysts on their thyroid. But, you know, get a biopsy if you want. I got a biopsy and it was thyroid cancer. And um, boy, I was glad to have psychologist parents again because we were very nose to the grindstone. We said, "Okay, what do we have to do? And they said, you got to take the thyroid out. Now, the thyroid is this gland that controls your metabolic function and it sits on top of the recurrent and superior laryngeal nerves, which control most all of your vocal function. And they have to kind of cut the thyroid off those nerves. And that is like getting gum out of hair. (laughs) You know, it's not um, a clean cut. And so what they said, and I had a wonderful doctor at Duke University, Ray Esclamado, and he said, listen, you know, we might nick the nerve because we got to get as much of this tissue out and if we nick the nerve, it's going to affect the way that you sing. And I had to really think to myself, okay, well, uh, what is my identity? You know, I'd spent my whole life singing, um, and I realized that you know, I'd gone to college. I liked uh, making creative things. I liked producing, and. Um, I could figure something out. And so we went through the surgery. It took two surgeries, actually. They had to do it in two parts, and we took it out. And every time I'd wake up um, from surgery and I'd go, hello? And then I'd think, oh, okay, I still have a voice. This is a a good start. Um, Then my teacher worked with me about two minutes a day for six weeks, and we built up to singing an aria. And um, the next year I won the Metropolitan Opera Competition, and um, I had a career.
2: It's amazing. Did the doctors who operated on you know that you were a singer and how important your voice was?
3: They did. And I think uh, the surgeon said that he had never been so nervous to operate before, in part because I think I gave him a CD of something I'd recorded. And I said, you know, don't mess it up. Essentially. <laughs> and. <laughs> and uh, I, I early on I, I made a list, and I would go into the doctor with these lists. I'd say, "Well, if this were to happen, would I be able to do this?" And in terms of the function of the pharynx, or you know, I knew all of the physiology of the voice at this point, so I asked him these very specific questions, and he would answer them graciously. But at a certain point, he said, "Listen, the bottom line is, I can take this out, and you can risk not being able to sing." Or you're going to have cancer, which means eventually you'll die. So you've got to make that choice. And that made it very clear for me.
2: Yeah. So we talked about gender fluidity in, in your music and how canto tenors were, were preceded by Castrati, about how Aknoten was considered to be, in retrospect, is now considered to perhaps have been trans. Um, I, I wonder if you feel like you express gender fluidity in in your own life outside of the music
3: Well, I'm gay, so um, in that sense, I feel like I'm a part of the queer community um, but i i feel very uh much a man in my own body um, and what's interesting is i don't actually feel feminine when i sing in that woman's register because it's actually very powerful um, and i don't mean to associate power with masculinity um, in that conventional way but it feels very much me um, and one thing my upbringing and all of my experiences have taught me is to just be myself so i ascribe this male gender to it and uh um, Um, it feels male to me when I sing that way. It doesn't, I don't associate, I guess you would say, the pitch with gender. So um, I have a lot of uh, friends and I'm a part of an incredibly beautiful community who are very fluid, um, and that brings me great joy.
2: Anthony Roth-Costanzo, it's just been a delight to talk with you. Thank you for your generosity in singing for us and showing us some of the things that your voice can do. I wish you... Just uh, great good luck. I hope I can say that. I know there's so many stage superstitions, but I'm so looking <laughs> forward perfect. to seeing you in Aknoten, Um And, and I, I just hope it's a wonderful experience for you.
0: Terry, it's been the thrill of a lifetime to talk to you, and thank you. Anthony Roth Costanzo speaking to Terry Gross in 2019. The cast recording of Akhenaten, the Philip Glass opera in which he starred, won a Grammy this year. Next week, he returns to the role in a revival of the Met Opera production. After a break, film critic Justin Chang reviews Memoria, one of his favorite movies of 2021. This is Fresh Air. The film Memoria made our critic Justin Chang's list of the best movies of 2021. Now it's getting an unusual long-term theatrical rollout, playing in multiple cities across the U.S. through the end of the year. The movie, which stars Tilda Swinton as a woman living in Colombia, was written and directed by the Thai filmmaker Apichatpong Wirasatagun. Justin says it's a sonic detective story that's truly transporting.
4: Here is his review. I'm a huge fan of the Thai writer-director Apichatpong Wirasatagun, which doesn't do much to dispel the widely held assumption that he makes movies only a critic could love. Weerasethakul's films like Tropical Malady and Syndromes in a Century, certainly demand close attention. They're slow-paced and contemplative, steeped in Thai folklore and Buddhist belief, and they have little interest in conventional narrative. They're also thrilling and deeply moving. If you go into them with your eyes and ears wide open and take the time to adjust to their rhythms, it's hard not to fall under their spell. Wirisatagun's new movie is called Memoria, And while it's as marvelously strange as anything he's ever made, it's also a bit of a departure. It's his first feature shot entirely outside Thailand, and it also marks his first time working with a movie star, in this case, the great Tilda Swinton. She's quietly mesmerizing as a Scottish-born botanist named Jessica, who lives in Medellin, Colombia. She's recently come to the city of Bogota to visit her sister, who's recovering from a mysterious illness. The movie begins when Jessica is awakened in the middle of the night by a loud bang. In the days to come, Jessica will hear that bang again and again, and soon she realizes that she's the only one who can hear it. Memoria is a sonic detective story, and it follows Jessica around town as she tries to figure out what the sound is and why she's hearing it. She visits a young sound engineer named Hernan, played by Juan Pablo Orego, who tries to help recreate the noise using pre recorded sound effects. Speaking in a mix of Spanish and English, Jessica describes the sound as a big ball of concrete that falls into a metal well. And Hernan asks her how big the ball is. How big? big?
3: And then then it shrinks.
4: I mean, it, it probably sounds differently in my head. Jessica's investigation leads her in a lot of strange directions. She visits an archaeologist who's studying some recently excavated human remains that may have something to do with the sound she's hearing. She spends some more time with Hernan, but then he suddenly vanishes, leaving her and us to wonder if she's losing her grip on reality. Eventually, Jessica travels to a nearby mountain village and meets an older fisherman, curiously also named Hernan, played by Elkin Diaz. Could they be two different versions of the same person? It wouldn't be a surprise in Wirasetagun's world, which is full of parallel realities and reincarnated spirits. Hernan says he's both blessed and cursed by his ability to remember everything that has ever happened to him, which provides a clue as to the significance of Memoria's title. It all builds to a climax that left my jaw on the floor as we finally find out what's been causing that sound, though as always with Wirasetagun, the revelation yields more questions than answers. But while Memoria has its share of baffling moments— Swinton's restrained presence anchors every scene. There's something especially emotional about the time Jessica spends with the older Hernan, in which we see two people who have never met forge an inexplicable yet profound connection. You can't take your eyes off Swinton, even when she's simply sitting still and quietly listening to someone speak. You're reminded in these moments that just listening to someone can be an act of radical empathy. There were a lot of mixed reactions last year when the film distributor Neon announced that Memoria would only be shown on the big screen as part of a never-ending, road-tour-style release. As of now, there are no plans for the movie to be made available on DVD or streaming platforms. There's something refreshing about this approach, which treats Memoria not as just another chunk of disposable, streamable content, but as a work of art, whose crystalline images and intricate sound design demand to be experienced under the best possible conditions. I hope you'll get to experience Memoria, as it's one of the most transporting movies you'll see, or hear, in a theater this year. Justin
0: Chang is the film critic for the LA Times. He reviewed Memoria, starring Tilda Swinton. On Monday's show, a little-known chapter of LGBTQ history about a forgotten women's prison in Greenwich Village. We talk with Hugh Ryan, author of The Women's House of Detention. He says prison is an example of how queer and trans people have been disproportionately represented in American prisons. Hope you can join us. <music> Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Roberta Sharrock Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support by Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Adam Staniszewski. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Salat, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm David B. Cooley.